Welcome to the free sermon podcast of the Potter's House Church in Virginia Beach, affiliated with Christian Fellowship Ministries. Our vision is winning souls, making disciples, and planting churches. Today is VBPH Sunday, where we feature a message that was recently preached from the pulpit of our church here in Virginia Beach, Virginia. You'll hear from Pastor Adam Dragoon and any other visiting preachers who have come through our church. Make sure to subscribe from wherever you're listening to continue hearing life-changing messages. If you like what you hear, please support World Evangelism by subscribing to the premium version of this podcast for even more sermons. Links are in the show notes. Enjoy today's sermon. We're going to open up our Bibles this morning as we come into the house of the living God. Isaiah chapter 5, if you'll join me there today. Isaiah chapter 5. So we have a daily Bible reading program here in our church, and um, this is another one of those scriptures, uh, another one of those messages inspired by our daily Bible reading program. I want to encourage you uh, to stay up to date with that. If you haven't been uh, doing that, you can get back into the habit. It is a wonderful habit to have. We, in our Bible study last night, had a great time speaking about the power of the Word of God. And I can testify to that power, even in my own life. And I want to encourage you, uh, if you want to um, connect with us on the YouVersion Bible app as the plan that we're going through, uh, we, can, we can help you with that immediately after the service. So Isaiah chapter 5, we're going we're gonna to look at a few scriptures there this morning. And uh, I, wanna, I guess I want to give you a quick warning. <laughs> it is well said that the job of the preacher is to comfort the afflicted and to afflict the comfortable. And I must admit this morning that the word that we're going to examine this morning includes more affliction than comfort. And I want to say that first of all because not every sermon is vanilla. Not every sermon is band-aids and happy juice. And if if every sermon that you hear is only the good stuff and none of the bad, then you're not getting the whole counsel of the Word of God. My mandate as a pastor and as a, as a leader of a congregation comes directly from 2 Timothy chapter 4, where Paul writes to his disciple and says, Preach the Word. Be ready in season and out of season. Convince, rebuke, exhort with all long-suffering and teaching. I didn't hear anything about massaging with warm butter there. I didn't hear anything about making everyone feel comfortable and happy. Sometimes to preach the word of God means to make us uncomfortable. And this is what Paul said, the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers, and they will turn their ears away from the truth. My goal as a pastor is to preach, as in Acts 20, verse 27, the whole counsel of God. And that includes Isaiah chapter 5. And so uh, I want to speak about the blessings and the love of God and the mercy and the forgiveness of God. And you're going to hear that in, in the message this morning. But we cannot ignore also the judgments of God, which are spoken about in this chapter. And I want to encourage you, uh, you might get mad, but that's okay. Hang on to the end. We're going to find hope together in Christ. I came across this story that I'd like to share with you about a young woman, a true story. A young woman who had been brought up in a Christian home. 
and who had uh, often had very serious convictions about coming to Christ. Instead, she chose to take the way of the world. Unfortunately, many young people make that unfortunate decision. Against the wishes of her mother and father, she insisted on keeping company with a wild crowd who lived only for a moment and tried to forget the things of eternity. Again and again, they pleaded with her, turn to Christ before it's too late. But she persistently refused to heed those admonitions. Finally, she was taken with a very serious illness. The doctors were confounded about, about what was making her ill and could not, uh, could not cause her to get any better. It soon became clear that she was heading toward her end. The hope of, of the doctors was lost. Death began to stare her in the face. And still, even though her mother was there by her side, her heart was hardened. She prayed with her. She, she prayed for her, urging her to repent of her sins and turn to the Savior. And one night before she passed away, she awoke out of a sound sleep, her mother sitting by her side. And in her dream, she asked, Mother, there was a voice that spoke to me in my dream that said, Open the Bible to Ezekiel 7, verses 8 and 9. It was, she, she had sensed that there was some presence in the room asking her to open to that particular verse. The mother, of course, not having that chapter memorized, opened the Bible by her side, and her heart sank as she read these words out loud. Ezekiel 7, 8 and 9. Now upon you I will soon pour out my fury and spend my anger upon you. I will judge you according to your ways and repay you for your abominations. My eye will not spare, nor will I have pity. I will repay you according to your ways, and your abominations will be in your midst. Then you shall know that I am the Lord who strikes. And as she read those words, the poor girl with a horror, a look of horror on her face sank into eternity. Don't let that be you this morning. We serve a God of incredible grace and mercy, but only for those who will turn to him. In the scripture we're about to read, we find the prophet Isaiah speaking on behalf of the Lord in great frustration. Can I tell you, God gets frustrated too. God gets frustrated when we are distant, when we are disobedient, when we are obstinate against him. God had done incredible things for Judah, for Jerusalem. We know the incredible lengths that God went to to save them from Pharaoh, from their own bondage, to save them from their foolishness in the wilderness. We know how much God did to rescue them and bless them and eventually made them the envy of the world under David and Solomon. And yet, even after all that God had done for them, they still turned their hearts toward wickedness. And now God has to explain to them why he is forced to allow judgment to occur. And I want to share this message with you, a message that I've titled, It Doesn't Have to Be This Way. With a, a, a warning that we don't have to follow the same mistakes 
as the people of Israel. This is why these things are written in the Word. For our admonition, for our warning, so that we don't have to make the same mistakes. I pray that you will take heed and listen to the warning this morning. Let's read together Isaiah 5, beginning with verse 7. The nation of Israel is the vineyard of the Lord of heaven's armies. The people of Judah are his pleasant garden. He expected a crop of justice, but instead he found oppression. He expected to find righteousness, but instead he heard cries of violence. What sorrow or woe unto you, who buy up house after house and field after field until everyone is evicted and you live alone in the land. Skipping to verse 11. What sorrow for those who get up early in the morning looking for a drink of alcohol and spend long evenings drinking wine to make themselves flaming drunk. They furnish wine and lovely music at their parties, lyre and harp, tambourine and flute, but they never think about the Lord or notice what He is doing. Verse 18. What sorrow or woe, judgment unto those who drag their sins behind them with ropes made of lies, who drag wickedness behind them like a cart. They mock God, saying, hurry up and do something. We want to see what you can do. Let the Holy One of Israel carry out His plan, for we want to know what it is, what sorrow, woe, and judgment for those who say that evil is good and good is evil, that dark is light and light is dark, that bitter is sweet and sweet is bitter. What sorrow for those who are wise in their own eyes and think themselves so clever. What a fitting description of our generation, of our culture this morning. And I pray that it's not true of you this morning. Let's pray for a moment. Lord, we come by the blood of Jesus. Lord, I'm seeking your will and your conviction this morning. Lord, not my own words, but God, your spirit and your truth would be made evident, made known to your people today. I know that in me there is nothing good, God, only what you have put there. And so this morning I'm trusting in you to deliver your word to your people through the foolishness of preaching. And I'm praying right now, God, that you would draw us all to obedience. Speak to us, God, of repentance and healing by the blood of Jesus. And we thank you. Lord, we give you honor and glory this morning in Jesus' mighty name. God's people would say, Amen. It didn't have to be this way. I want to share, first of all, with you that God's blessings are not without expectations. How many of you, let me see your hand, if God has blessed you? Every hand should be in the air. God has blessed you. You're alive today. You're not in jail today. You're not in the mental institution today. At least you have life, you have purpose, you have dreams. And, and that's, that we haven't even spoken about the spiritual blessings. You've been saved, most of you. You're saved, you're right with God, your sins have been forgiven. God, for most of you, has given you a roof over your head and a bed to sleep on at night. God has given you a job with, uh, with income. Most likely, God has provided for you when you were poor and hungry. God has given you wildly above and beyond your expectations. Isn't that true this morning? We're sitting in air conditioning. We're not sweating this morning. That's a blessing. Hallelujah. You have clothes to wear. You have food to eat. You have more than 90% of the world has if you live here in America. What a blessing we have. God has given you incredible blessings. And this is also true 
about the nation of Judah and Israel. God had blessed his nation. God had given them incredible things, as I mentioned. And in our scripture, he compares the kingdom of Judah to a vineyard. I want you to think about this image for a moment. A vineyard. A place where a, uh, a vine dresser will grow the vines which produce the grapes which will generate a harvest and income and a great product. I want to tell you, if you don't know anything about keeping a, a vineyard, it is a year-round full-time job. There are vineyards here in, in Virginia. Uh, many of America's greatest vineyards are in, over in California. You'll find some amazing vineyards in Eastern Europe, in Bulgaria, Romania, in Italy. And if you've ever uh, driven past a vineyard, you will discover it is a full-time job for an entire crew of vine dressers. Keeping a vineyard is a very difficult thing. Think of all that the vine dresser has to do in order to receive a harvest. They have to keep the soil in perfect condition. They have to pull the weeds. Vines, they have to have something on which to grow. You can't just have the vines growing all, all over the ground. You have to create a fence, a line, posts, and those, those have to constantly be repaired and kept intact. You have to prune the vines. You can't let every branch begin to grow. There are some that must be pruned in order to be most fruitful. Those have to have enough water. If the rain doesn't fall, it is the vine dresser's job to water the vines. He is also, uh, he needs to keep out the infestation of bugs and birds and foxes and rabbits and all the things that can destroy the vines. There are a thousand things that can go wrong with, with growing grapes and only one way to do it right. And I'm telling you, it takes a lot of work. Now, let me ask you something. If a farmer, if a vine dresser took care of his vineyard for a whole year, planted and growing and keeping and tending and pulling weeds and keeping out the foxes and the rabbits, if he did all of that and at the end of the season, there's no grapes, would it be worth it? Would you continue to do all of that hard work year after year? If there's no grapes, if there's no harvest... If there's no blessing that comes out of it, the point is that God had been helping his people year after year, decade after decade, generation after generation. God had been pouring out blessing on them, keeping them uh, when they go astray. God had been uh, bringing them back in line, watching over them, helping them. And what he's saying in our scripture, he's saying after all of the after all of the blessing I've poured into you. I'm not receiving a harvest. And God, of course, looks at that and he says, there's something wrong with this picture. Listen to our, to our scripture where it says, the people of Judah are his pleasant garden. The nation of Israel is the vineyard of the Lord. And listen to, God has an expectation this morning. He expects a crop of justice, but instead he found oppression. He expected to find righteousness, but instead he heard the cries of violence. Let's examine this for just a moment. What does God expect? When he blesses, what is the crop that he is expecting to harvest from our lives? There are two things mentioned in our scripture. Number one is justice. Everyone say the word justice. 
Justice, I'm not talking about social justice. Justice with any modifier before it, does it becomes injustice. But justice is a mark of the character of God. Justice is when right turns out right, and when wrong turns out wrong. It is when good people are rewarded and when bad people are condemned. How many know we serve a God of justice? And when we serve the God of justice, he expects a spirit of justice in our lives. I'm not saying that, you know, we should walk around being the Holy Spirit and condemning everyone around us. But I am saying that even in our own hearts, we should be able to rightly discern what is right and what is wrong. He expects us to be righteous. Righteousness. God says this is, this is a mark of, uh, of the harvest when God plants the seed of the gospel in your life. If you have received that seed and it germinates and it produces a crop, what is the crop that we should see in your life? The New Testament calls it the fruit of the Spirit. Love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and long-suffering. You know what the problem is? Well, I think you'll know what the problem is when you look in the mirror. We don't find a lot of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and long-suffering. These are the things that God's looking for. The fruits of righteousness. That word righteousness means goodness, virtue, decency, integrity. Morality, high-mindedness, honesty, being honorable, innocent, blameless, guiltless. And God says, these are the things that I expect from you. I expected to find this. It is right if you plant a seed. Listen, if you planted an apple seed, then you expect a tree to come forth and produce what? That's the way of the natural world, right? You plant an apple seed, you expect apples. But if you get kiwis, there's something wrong with this picture. God says, I'm planting the seeds of righteousness, but I'm not seeing the fruits of righteousness. We are not called to condemn people to hell, but we are called to be fruit inspectors. Can somebody say amen? We can examine the fruit of one another's lives. We can examine, it's more difficult, but we can examine the fruit of our own life. What did God find instead of justice and righteousness? Verse 7 said that he expected the crop of justice, but instead he found oppression. This word means persecution, abuse, tyranny, repression, subjugation, enslavement. Literally, the Hebrew word behind this means the shedding of, of innocent blood. It is the allowance of wickedness to be happening under our nose. He expects to find righteousness, but instead he heard the cries of violence. He heard those who were oppressed crying out for mercy. He heard those who needed the forgiveness and grace being stomped out. Oh, it's a good thing that this doesn't have anything to do with us this morning. Whew! I love what uh, one commentator said. It says that he looked for judgment, but the poor and fatherless and the widow would have their causes judged in a righteous manner. But behold, oppression was as in the plague of leprosy, corruption, perverting justice, and oppressing of the poor. 
God was looking for righteousness, but instead he found the cry of the poor and the oppressed. I was amazed to see this week in the news that uh, the, there was a Texas law uh, that was protecting the unborn babies that are, uh, that are over six weeks of, at the time of gestation. There's a Texas law now that protects those babies from being aborted. Thank God for that. And the Supreme Court uh, decided not to review and let that let that law stand without without uh, without talking about it or judging it down, and they allowed it to stand. And isn't it interesting that many uh, ungodly politicians began squealing with the voice of a thousand demons? You're 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 trampling on our rights to destroy our babies in the womb. It cannot stand. We must, uh, we must, uh, pastor, you're not supposed to preach about politics. Well, can I tell you, there's a, there's a million babies, nearly a million babies every year that are saying, thank you, Texas. And there are many politicians who say, we must have the right. No, we have a duty to slay those who have no voice. There was one Texas Democrat I was amazed to see. She was uh, speaking out on social media saying, uh, you young girls in Texas, you better not have any unprotected sex because now you can't have abortions. Like, yeah, that should have been the point all along, right? Don't create unwanted pregnancy. This is what we've been calling for the whole time. This is what the Lord looks down and sees. A nation where the shedding of innocent blood is allowed. This is what God wants. He wants us to fight for justice in our culture, in our society, but even more in our own lives. See, in marriage, if you're married this morning, then you should have the expectation that your spouse is going to be faithful to you, right? That's a good expectation. And yet, this is what God says. Romans 12, verse 1. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. Everybody say the word reasonable. It means God, when He blesses us, when He saves us, when He forgives our sins, He says, this is reasonable for you to live your whole life for me. To do everything that you can to serve me. It's reasonable. One translation said this is truly the way to worship him. And it goes to show that in a marriage, if one spouse is unfaithful, that there is a righteous and a holy anger and jealousy. And this is the one, the, the one reason in the Bible God gives for a divorce to occur. One reason. Unfaithfulness. Infidelity. God, you know, how many believe that God loves marriage? God is behind me. God invented marriage. God loves marriage, but God said there's one reason why a marriage can break apart. Because of unfaithfulness. There's one reason that God allows for it. He doesn't love it, but He allows for it. And somehow we believe that when it comes to marriage, but we don't apply that same logic, that same belief to our own commitment to God. Somehow the rules change. If you are unfaithful to God, and you, your, your affections and your love and your commitment to God is replaced by a love of money. Idolatry. It's okay. You don't have to say amen. I'm just going to keep preaching. 
Your love of materialism or self or comfort. Oh, and pastor, I would never fall in love with comfort. Oh, pastor, I, w- I, would, I would never allow myself, my mind to be distracted during the church service. Oh, I would never allow my smartphone to replace Jesus. Jesus spoke to an unfaithful church in Revelation 2, verse 2, when he said, I know your works, your labors, your patience. You've tested those who say they are apostles, but they're not. Nevertheless, Jesus said, I have this against you. You have left your first love. It's amazing to me that you can work. Jesus says, I know you guys are working. You're doing something for me. Your labors, your patience, you're doing some good things. And yet you've lost your love. Your love has been replaced. God has planted a vineyard. And the expectation of a harvest of righteousness is now going unfulfilled. And so what does God do? Going back to that vine dresser. If you are uh, have a, a field full of vines, but they're not producing grapes, what's the nat- natural thing you would do? If you went year after year, one, two, three years, and there's no fruit, what's the natural thing to do? I guess vines don't work here. I'm going to burn them all down, and I'm going to replace them with some other crop. I'm going to plant wheat, because wheat is easier. I'm going to plant vegetables. I'm going to plant something that doesn't require so much work. Let it not be said of us this morning that we're not producing fruit. Jesus said, I am the vine. You are the branches. And if I live in you and you live in me, you will bear much fruit. And if we don't see that fruit, love and joy and peace and patience, kindness, long-suffering, We have to see, God, am I still connected? Or will I be pruned? It's okay. I didn't expect any amens this morning. I'm just going to go to point number two now. Point number two is that God brings judgments against the unfaithful. Don't worry. We'll get some good news before we end. But we cannot skip over the fact that God brings judgments against the unfaithful. I want to examine three of them with you this morning, four of them. The first is that God, excuse me, that materialism leads to emptiness. Let's look at our scripture, Isaiah 5, verse 8. I'm reading from the New Living Translation, where it says, What sorrow for you who buy up house after house and field after field, until everyone is evicted and you live alone in the land. What is God so upset about here? He's so upset because he sees, he looks down at his people, that he is saved, that he is invested, that he is planted, that he is cared for, that he is loved and watched over and blessed. And he looks at what they're doing. He says, you care more about the things that you own than you do about the people. It's the love of stuff and things over God and people. For stuff and things, people have gone to great lengths. For stuff and things... Men have worked 80 hours a week trying to get overtime. For stuff and things, the church has suffered. There are people not here this morning because why? They're looking for stuff and things. Things and stuff. Stuff and things. And guess what? The things and the stuff and the stuff and the things in the long run mean nothing. Can the preacher preach? 
we just looked at a few weeks ago, King Solomon, who had all the stuff and the things. He had all the things and the stuff. And he had more stuff and things than you have ever had. And he looked at all of his stuff and things, and he said, all. Say all. All is vanity. Passing away. I'm not saying it's evil to own stuff, to have things. But it is evil when your stuff and things own you. God looked and he said, what sorrow for you who continue to buy up house after house and field after field and iPhone after iPhone until you've forgotten every person who cares about you and you should care about. Jesus gave us two laws to live by, right? Mark chapter 12, verse 30. You must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. And the second is like it. Equally important, love your neighbor as yourself. Who did God call us to love? God and people. That's where our affection should be. God and people. God and people are what truly matters. When you step into eternity, it is your love of God and your love of people that will have any effect. Instead of God and people, what do we love? Stuff and things. We rewrite that commandment, don't we? And we, it sounds something like this. And you must love the position at your job and the salary it provides. And you must love it so much that it removes you and your family from the assembly of the living God and from the body of Christ. And the second is like it. Love your house, your car, your hobbies, your PlayStation, and your smartphone as yourself. Amen, Pastor. Amen. Listen to 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 9. Those who desire to be rich fall into a temptation and a snare, and into many foolish and harmful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. The love of money is a root of all kinds of evil for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. Notice that God, the judgment of God is not that he's sending lightning bolts from heaven on people. He doesn't have to do that. The judgment for the love of money and greed is its own wickedness. They have pierced themselves through with many sorrows. And ultimately, it does not fulfill. Listen to what God said in our scripture. He said, many of your houses will stand deserted. Your mansions will be empty. Ten acres of vineyard will not produce even six gallons of wine. Ten baskets of seed will yield only one basket of grain. And if we are honest, we need only look to Hollywood to learn this truth. Where those stars and starlets that have billions, millions and billions of dollars in the bank, and guess what? Their poor, perverse lives lead them again and again to rehab, divorce, and shame without Jesus. Why do you want to be like them? Pastor, I just want a few more stuff and things. Why? Why? I'm not, uh, I'm not condemning you to a vow of poverty like a nun, but I'm saying your love of stuff and things, things and stuff, can derail you from the kingdom. What's more important, money or ministry? I'll let you ponder that for a moment. The second judgment that God brings is against drunkenness. Isaiah 5, verse 11. What sorrow for those who get up early in the morning looking for a drink of alcohol and spend long evenings drinking wine to make themselves flaming drunk. Does the church still believe that drinking alcohol is a sin? You know, in our family, uh, I'm so grateful that my 
my grandmother is still sitting here with us. She testifies. My grandfather, her husband, Grandpa Cliff, he refused to drink because the story goes that my great-grandfather, his father, was the town drunk. And he can remember very clearly how it brought shame upon him uh, as a young boy and the entire family. And for that reason, my grandfather never drank alcohol, and thank God that we have followed in his footsteps since then. Thank God, Grand Mary, you straighten him out. <laughs> because that has been an incredible blessing to our family. We, don't, we, we fight with other things, but we don't have to f- have the fight of alcoholism and drunkenness. What does drunkenness lead to? It leads to destruction. Look at our scripture, verse 12. They furnish wine and lovely music at their grand parties. Sounds fun. But they never think about the Lord or notice what he is doing. What does drunkenness cause? It causes a stolen heart for the things of God. When people attempt to live for God and also have parties on the weekend, you know what? You can only do one of those well. How many of you, as a new convert, you uh, you tried to go back to the party scene after being saved? How many figured out it doesn't work very well? You've been ruined to the party. You've been ruined to the drugs and the alcohol. It's, I say it all the time. The most uh, the most miserable people on earth are backslidden Christians who know the truth, who have tasted of the and seen that the Lord is good, and trying to go back to the wickedness. It steals your heart for the things of God. Secondly. It says that it creates distance between you and God. Verse 13. So my people will go into exile. Say the word exile. That means distance, doesn't it? Exile far away because they do not know me. The curse of alcohol causes distance between you and God. You say, but pastor, if drinking a beer, is that going to make me go to hell? I don't know. That's your own personal conviction. I do know what the Bible says, though. I know that the the alcohol can cause good people to do stupid things. Genesis 9, verse 21. This is this is Noah. I mean, we revere Noah. We just went to observe the incredible thing that he built at the Ark Encounter in Kentucky. It's amazing. Noah's an amazing guy, an incredible preacher of righteousness, but alcohol. One day he drank some wine, and he became drunk and laid naked in his tent. Nothing good comes out of that. Good people do stupid things when they get drunk. It robs you of true spiritual sustenance. Listen to what our scripture says. Those who are great and honored will starve, and the common people will die of thirst. Ultimately leads to hell. Verse 14. The grave is licking its lips in anticipation, opening its mouth wide. The great and lowly and all the drunken mob will be swallowed up. You didn't hear this on K-Love, did you? And yet, this is an incredibly common theme throughout the Word of God. Ephesians 5.18, don't be drunk with wine, because that will ruin your life. Instead, be filled with the Holy Spirit. Hey, there's a reason why they call them spirits. You know that? Spirits? The problem is they're not holy spirits. We've got something better this morning. God wants to fill you with the Holy Spirit. Where you can be drunk with the presence of God and you won't wake up with a hangover. Thank God. We can have a party for the Holy Ghost. Wine produces mockers. Alcohol leads to brawls. Those led astray by drink 
cannot be wise. Proverbs 20, verse 1. Somebody needed to hear this this morning. Maybe, maybe it was me. Proverbs 23, verse 29. Who has anguish? Who has sorrow? Who is always fighting? Who's always complaining? Who always has unnecessary bruises and bloodshot eyes? The one who spends long hours in the taverns trying out new drinks. Isaiah 5, 22. What sorrow for those who are heroes at drinking wine and boast about the alcohol that they can hold. In Romans, it says, we belong to the day. We don't participate in the darkness of wild parties and drunkenness because we are of the day. Are you of the day? This is a mark of the fruit of the Spirit. You say, Pastor, can I just have a little sip now and then? Well, it's like if you're driving on the highway and you're right next to a cliff that leads to a thousand foot drop. And you say, Pastor, isn't it okay if I just rub my tire up against the edge a little bit? Wouldn't that be okay? What's the problem with that? Am I going to go to hell? You read the Bible. You come to your own conclusion. Galatians 5.21. Envy, drunkenness, wild parties, and other sins like these. Anyone living that sort of life will not, will not inherit the kingdom of God. We're going to bring this to a close. The third judgment against those who are not producing the fruit of righteousness is the, the most serious. It is self-delusion. And I want you to stick with me. This is, the, this is the scripture that inspired the message. So if you didn't hear anything else, listen to this. Verse 18 says this. What sorrow, woe, or judgment for those who drag their sins behind them with a rope made of lies, who drag wickedness behind them like a cart. When I read that, I was amazed. What is the will of God? The will of God in salvation is this. Repent of sins, trust in Jesus, and you can live a new life for Him. It is a clean slate. It is a new birth. It's a new life. Thank God for His mercy. The will of God is Hebrews 12, verse 1. Since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight, lay aside the sin which so easily ensnares us, so that we run with endurance the race that is set before us. What is that? What is God saying? Lay aside those things which are hindering you. Leave them behind, man. The parties, the girlfriend, the boyfriend. Leave the, the greed and the anger, the bitterness. Leave it behind. Run for the Lord. And what does God say when he looks at his people? He says, you're dragging your sins behind you. A rope made of lies. Instead, there are many religious people who show up even on Sunday mornings choosing to pull their sins along with them. And what it shows us is a lack of true repentance. It's the idea of, I, 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 want, I want to go for God, but, you know, I really don't want to let go of this. This lifestyle, this lie that I've been telling myself, that it's, it's going to be okay. God, God's not going to, you know, strike me down if I just hold on to the rope a little bit longer. And for years, you're pulling some, some wickedness behind you. For, for, for years and, and maybe, maybe decades... Continue to live like hell and still get to heaven. That don't make no sense. Matthew Henry's commentary. There are those in a woeful condition who set up sin 
and exert themselves to gratify their own lusts. They are daring in their sin, walking after their own lust. It is in scorn that they call God the Holy One. They confound and overthrow the distinctions between good and evil. They prefer their own reasoning to divine revelation. They prefer their own devices to the counsels and commands of God. They deem it prudent and politic to continue in profitable sins and to neglect self-denying duties. That's probably a great description of modern Christianity. Let me ask you this morning, are you holding on to that which is destroying you with a rope of lies? God's okay with it. You're You're like one of Santa's reindeer. God's okay with this. He's not judged me. He hasn't sent me to hell yet, so it's got to be okay, right? Holding on to some perversion, jealousy, greed, bitterness. Here's the good news. You can cut it loose this morning. You can run the race. God will strengthen you. The Holy Spirit is here to set you free if you want. Problem is, there are those who don't. It all leads to incredible confusion. Verse 20 says this as we close. What sorrow for those who say that evil is good and good is evil, that dark is light and light is dark, that bitter is sweet and sweet is bitter. How foolish it is for someone to take a drink of something so sweet and smooth and say, mmm, that tastes nasty. Or to someone to put some motor oil in their mouth and say, mmm, that tastes delicious. How foolish is that? How foolish would it be for you to take a spoonful of sand and put it in your mouth? Some of you have done that at the beach, right? Yum, that's the most delicious thing I ever ate. That would be stupid, right? Or for you to put a, you know, a $40 prime rib cooked uh, medium rare, just buttery smooth, and you're chewing it, and you're like, that's the nastiest thing I ever had. Don't make no sense. This is exactly what God says will happen to those who continue in disobedience. This is basically, this scripture is the state of the Western world today. Where we say, despite all of our scientific advances, all of our technological miracles, all of the medical discoveries that we've made, and yet we have a culture that cannot figure out what is good and what is evil. We have a culture that says men can give birth figure that out we have a culture that it says it's okay for two women to to uh to marry one another no problem there we have a culture that says uh, go down to your local library and find drag queen story hour for your four-year-old woe to those who call good evil and evil good At the same time, they're saying marriage should be avoided. Church should be avoided. Righteousness, stay away from that. No fun there. Calling good evil and evil good. Now, it's one thing when all of those things are out there. But it's quite another when it's in here. It leads to utter confusion where we don't even know what is up and what is down anymore. Pastor, I'm so confused. Can I tell you something? Confusion is the judgment of God against those who are unrighteous. I want to tell you, when you have a relationship with God, when you have the word of God, you don't have to be confused. I know what's true. I don't have to wonder about it. 
I don't need to know. Uh, pa- Pastor, I'm so, I don't know if I'm going to heaven or hell. If you're wondering, it's probably because you're going to hell. Those who are on their way to heaven know it. I know that I know that I'm right with God because my sins are forgiven. My life is changed. I'm not confused. Thank God. But if there is areas in our lives where up is down, down is up, left is right, good is evil, evil is good. It's a mark that God hasn't touched that part of our lives yet. I close with the hope in Christ. Romans 2, verse 4. I won't leave you without hope this morning. Don't you see how wonderfully kind, tolerant, and patient God has been with you? Can't you see that His kindness is intended to turn you from your sin? The goodness of God in New King James, the goodness of God ought to lead us to repentance. It should show us God's kindness, yes, is so that we can come to our senses. Say, God, I've been so stupid. God, would you receive me? We we sang that song today. Create in me a clean heart, oh God. See, what we need this morning is not just, we don't just need to reform a few areas of our lives. We need a new heart. Repentance means the old person is gone. And now I'm a new creation in Christ. That's what we do at baptism, right? The water baptism is a symbol. The old man is dying with Christ and raising up to new life. There is hope in Christ if we'll turn to Him, but it requires repentance. What about you this morning? Is there fruit of righteousness in your life? It didn't have to be this way. I encourage you this morning to find hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes for just a few moments. Thanks again for listening to the free version of the VBPH Sermon Podcast, where we post sermons on Mondays, Wednesdays, Fridays, and Sundays. We also have a premium version of this podcast, which posts sermons and interviews every single day of the week. So why would you want to subscribe? I'm glad you asked. I have five reasons for you. Number one, on the premium version, we post full versions of Testimony Tuesday, Pastor Campbell Thursday, and Study Day Saturday. If you'd like to hear those episodes, then subscribe now. Reason number two, uninterrupted listening. We remove all ads and all extraneous content from our premium feed. Reason number three, premium episodes always release six hours earlier than the free version. If you're an early bird, it's a great reason to subscribe. Number four, our subscribers will gain access to our sermon chat group on WhatsApp, where we interact directly with listeners around the globe. If you'd like to chat with other premium subscribers, subscribe today. And finally, every dollar we raise goes to world evangelism. This is the best reason to subscribe because you are helping us launch churches all around the world. We don't put one dime in our pockets. Everything that we raise from this podcast will go directly to Thursday night of Chandler Conference. So please subscribe today by using the links in the show notes below. Thanks. Thanks. 
Thank you so much for listening to the sermon podcast of the Virginia Beach Potter's House Church. Were you blessed by today's message? Let us know. Please leave us a rating on Apple Podcast or on Podchaser. We'll be back next time with another life-changing word from heaven. God bless. God bless.